Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, as we open up God's Word, we're grateful that you joined us this weekend on this holiday weekend to hear from the Lord and to hear from His Word. We'll be reading the entirety of the chapter of Acts chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor the case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For you have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst all the Jews throughout the world, and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I wish the Lord... God of our fathers, believe everything laid down by the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood among the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them out off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusia, who was a Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. You may be seated. There's probably no more startling story in the Gospels than that of the rich young ruler. 
the man that seemed to have it all together. Not only was he young, he was rich, and being a young man and being rich, he was also known to be a ruler. He was one that you would have looked at from the outside, and you would think, well, this kid really has something going for him. He's going places. He's really making something of himself. He's got his head screwed on straight, as they say. He would have been the admiration of old men, and no doubt mothers would have wanted him to date their daughters. And yet there was something missing. And he asked Jesus perhaps one of the best questions that could have been asked. He comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet Jesus was not so enamored as the rest might have been. He says to this man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. To which the young man says, well, I've done all of those things. Check, 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 and check. In fact, I've done all those things since my youth. But Jesus, knowing the heart of all men and knowing this young man's heart, goes for the death blow, as it were, and says, but one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. See, Jesus pinpointed the idol of his heart, the one thing that he needed to forsake in order to follow Christ, really in order to have eternal life. And you know what happened? The text says that the man went away very sad, for it says that he was extremely rich. He was standing before the Lord of glory, the pearl of greatest price, the treasure hidden in the field, the greatest gift of heaven and of earth. And yet he turns away. He turns away sadly and goes back to his pile of worthless riches, of toys and trinkets, things that would never last, things that Jesus says that moths will eat and rust will destroy. You see, it was a near conversion, so close and yet so far away. Perhaps you might think of others in the Bible that had a similar experience. Perhaps you know of friends and family and coworkers or neighbors that were seemingly on heaven's doorsteps and yet in the end turn away. Indeed, I tell you that there is nothing more tragic in this life than such an experience as that. This morning we have such a near conversion, that of the Roman governor Felix He is amused, he is entertained, he is even alarmed and frightened by Paul. But in the end, he does not listen, but rather procrastinates and says, I'll hear you again another time, and then another time, and then another time, until there is no other time, and it is too late. Indeed, Felix serves as a warning to us all that there is no other time. When hearing the word 
of our Lord. Today is the day of action. Today is the day of response. And we'll see that through this passage in three points. The accusation, the defense, and finally the plea. First, the accusation. We have read how Paul was delivered to Felix there in Caesarea by Claudius Lysias. And he's brought there via an escort of 470 Roman soldiers because there was a plot to kill Paul by the Jews. And as we said last week, it might seem that the Romans were the ones that were providing the protection and the defense, but in reality, we know it was the Lord. It was the one that told Paul, take courage, take heart, just as you have testified before me here in Jerusalem, so too you will testify before me in Rome. And so the Lord was providing the protection, and he's even funding the trip to Rome via the Roman government. And so there would be many opportunities to proclaim the name of Christ along the way, including here in Caesarea, including even before the very governor of that area, the one in whom he now stands on trial. We read in verse 1 that Ananias, the high priest, comes down along with other elders to bring their accusations. You can see that this was very important to them. They wanted Paul gone. They wanted Paul imprisoned. Perhaps they even wanted Paul dead. No doubt they did. That's why they allowed this plot to take place. They wanted anything but for Paul to be set free. Why? Because Paul was bad for business. Paul was bad for their reign of power. And that is essentially their charge. Their charge comes via Tertullus. We could say he was their lawyer, their representative. Last week I had a few nice things to say about lawyers. This week not so much. Because what we see here is a a very bad lawyer. One who fabricates and trumps up charges and brings accusations. As one lawyer once told me, if in trial, if you have favorable evidence, you pound the evidence. If you have circumstantial evidence, you pound the circumstantial evidence. But if you don't have either, you just pound the table and pretend like you have both. Well, in this case, there was a lot of table pounding. There was no evidence. There was not even circumstantial evidence. But there was a lot of flattery of Felix, the judge, which is very ironic Because the Jews hated the Romans, and they hated the Roman officials. They saw them as invaders. They saw them as oppressors. And so for Tertullus and Ananias and the Jews to address Felix with such flattery is disingenuous at best. And in reality, it's all-out lies. They had to speak out of both sides of their mouths. So as I read this, this is my interpretation of what happens. They say to Felix in verse 2 through 8, Oh, because of you, most excellent Felix, you scoundrel. We have enjoyed so much peace. That's why Paul had to be escorted here via 400 Roman soldiers. You have so much foresight and such wonderful reforms all of which we have hated. 
and in every way and everywhere by everyone, you are despised. But we are so gratitude and so grateful and appreciative of your work. And so we beg for you to hear us briefly, and then you can go back to your cruel and despotic ways. The irony of these statements is thick, but the actual charges are quite thin, aren't they? They come to Felix with three charges. It says we have, verse 5, found this man to be a plague. The Greek word is a pest. He is a bother, which in reality is not a chargeable offense, is it? I hear this quite often in my home when I hear children bickering at each other and I ask them what's going on and usually I hear something like this, well, brother is being annoying, sister is annoying me. And my classic dad answer is, well, don't be annoyed and then they won't be annoying. Problem solved. Similar here. Paul is being a pest. He's being a bother. He's being a a plague. He's being a cancer. Well, that could be more on them than on him, couldn't it? You being bothered may reveal something about yourself, not something necessarily about what he's doing. They go on to say that he has been stirring up riots. In fact, not only stirring up riots among all the Jews, but throughout the world, they say. But as we see, Paul was in many ways minding his own business. In fact, when they arrest him, he was in the temple, not doing anything at all, not even preaching, not even teaching. So we might ask, who is stirring up who? And then they go on to say that he profaned the temple. But again, no proof can be given because it was not true. So essentially, they say in verse 8, the conclusion is, well, you go ahead and examine them yourself, Felix, and you'll find out everything that we have said is true. And it says in verse 9 that all the Jews joined them in the charges, and they affirmed that all these things were true. Essentially, all the other Jews that came along were like little bobbleheads that were nodding in agreement, which does not make it right or true. It does not... Make it the case, even though it be the popular opinion. The popular opinion does not verify truth. Everyone can wholly agree and yet wholly be wrong, can't they? And so we can see that these charges were trumped up. When it comes down to it, the real reason why they were there is because they didn't like Paul. And they didn't like what he stood for, namely Christ. And as a result, they saw him as a threat But they can't say any of that, so instead they have to come up with false accusations that are not true. And we need to remember that when we take a stand for Christ. When we take a stand in this world, we are standing against the kingdom of this world, against its ways, against its thoughts, against its ideas. And when you do so, you represent more than yourself. You represent Christ, and as a result, you represent right from wrong. And yet the world wants what it thinks is right to be right. And what it thinks to be wrong to be wrong. But the world does not get to make those standards, do they? Only God and his word truly 
tells us right from wrong. And so any that stand outside of that will be hated. Jesus said as much, didn't he? He said it in that Sermon on the Mount and in those Beatitudes. In fact, the last Beatitude was, blessed are those that are reviled and persecuted and have all sorts of evil against them falsely because of my account. And that was true of Paul, wasn't it? Here he was being reviled. He was being falsely accused, not because of ultimately something that he did, but ultimately because who he was in Christ. But we see that Paul makes a defense, and his defense is almost quite the exact opposite of his accusers. Paul speaks with honor to Felix, but he does not speak in flattering terms. He says that he is able to cheerfully make his defense before him, but goes on to say the things that are being told of me are not true. They say that I was stirring up riots, but you will find out, Felix, that I was in Jerusalem only for 12 days. It's not a lot of time to do much of anything, let alone to lead a revolt. And you'll find that in that time I did not even dispute anyone in the temple or in the synagogue or even in the city. I did not stir up a crowd. If so, where's the proof? Where are your witnesses that supposedly saw this? They have not come. They are not here. And so these individuals cannot even tell me the wrong that I have done or tell you the wrong that I have done. But in verse 14, Paul gets into the real reason why he is being accused and he is being imprisoned. But he says, this is what I will confess to you, that I confess that I belong according to the way which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers and believe everything that that has been laid down by the law and is written in the prophets. He says, this is the reason why I have been accused. This is why I've been imprisoned, because I belong to the way. The way was that derogatory term that was used by the Jews, to which the Christians readily embraced. Why? Because in Jesus, he is the way and the truth and the life, as he says in John 14, 6. And they say that I am a part of a sect and leading a sect, but he says it is no sect at all. In fact, that is the most important thing that Paul says in his defense. He says everything that has been laid down has been laid down by the law and is written in the prophets. Yes, Christianity is new in a sense, but in reality it is as old as time itself. It has not come out of nowhere. In fact, this is what the scriptures have been teaching from the very beginning. This is the fulfillment of what God has promised. And notice what Paul says. He says, I believe all of it. Show me that which I do not believe. I believe in the God that they say that they worship and no other. I do not believe in a false God. I believe in the one and only true God, the one that has revealed himself in scripture. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. And he says to Felix, you can even examine them. They believe in the resurrection. They just don't believe in whom the resurrection has come through. 
In other words, they do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, and therefore that is why I am on trial. Paul essentially says, I am a Bible-believing Jew. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And that's something that we must notice about Paul's defense. He says, if I'm going to be accused, then it needs to be on the basis of Scripture, that which I have erred on, things that I do not know or do not understand. If you want to bring that to me, I will hear you all day long. This is a part of Paul being able to say, I have a good conscience before God and man. In fact, he says that in verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man, just like we talked about last Sunday. And so when we think about being a Bible-believing Christian, we shouldn't think of that as oftentimes the world thinks of that as derogatory terms, as if that is something that is radical. First off, is there any other Christian than a Bible-believing Christian? Why would you not believe in the Bible if you are a Christian? And so second, we can say that that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. This word that we have comes from God who cannot lie. And therefore, we have no better foundation. And so we too can be and must be like Paul. I believe, notice what he says, I believe everything laid down by the law and that which is written in the prophets, which was the scriptures of that time. And so you can see, quite obviously, from this record, who is right and who is wrong. There was no legitimate charges, no legitimate accusations of wrongdoing. Sometimes justice is muddled and not always clear, but this one is as clear as the noonday. But we see perhaps the most important parts in Paul's imprisonments. We see his plea. In verse 22, we read that Felix had an accurate knowledge of the way, meaning that he knew this so-called sect. What is being brought before him was not something that he was unfamiliar with. He knew about Christ. He had some information of Christianity, and yet it says that he put them off. He postpones. He gives an excuse, and really quite a lame excuse, when he says, when Lysias comes, I will decide your case. The problem with that is Lysias reported to him. Why wait on him for his input? Felix was the governing official. Felix surely could decide and was supposed to decide. That's why Lysias brought Paul to him. The reality is this had nothing to do with Lysias or even a decision. The reality was Felix was in no rush. There was no justice delayed, justice denied in Felix's mind. The reality is that he was just not very concerned of justice at all. But he was much more concerned about what he could gain from such a situation as this. We read of that in verse 26 and it's quite indicting when it says that he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. See, he was wanting a bribe. In fact, most commentators believe this is the reason why 
Felix even allowed this case to come before him because we read back in chapter 23 that when Felix heard that Paul was from Cilicia, he says, I will take this case. I will hear this case. See, Cilicia, where Paul was from, was one of the richest parts of the Roman kingdom. And so Felix no doubt thought, well, there's some deep pockets here. And maybe I'll be able to get something out of it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it demonstrate that you can have it all and still not have enough? Because Felix still needed more and more and more. But it does say that he called for Paul often. And Paul, being Paul, used the most out of every opportunity that was given to him. In these private conversations with seemingly just him, Felix, and with his wife, Drusia, we notice what he talked to them about. We read of it there in verse 24. He says, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that. What is it that Paul wanted to talk to Felix about? Faith in Jesus Christ. It does not say that he wanted to talk to Felix about his case. He does not want to try to plead his case about how he was falsely accused, even though he was. Paul's plea was not for his freedom. Paul's plea was for Felix's freedom in Christ. And if you think, if there was ever a time that Paul could think just a little bit about self, if he could have had just a little self-interest, if he could have worked out a deal, if he could have worked out a plea bargain, perhaps even just slid over a little bit of money to Felix, his case could have been taken care of for the sake of his own freedom, for his own self-interest. And yet, Paul would never stoop to that level. He would not do it. It was all about Christ, even to his own self-detriment and further imprisonment. And notice in these times, Paul does not go easy on Felix. He goes hard down the lane, as we say. His message was not, Felix, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's Felix, you're a sinner and you're in desperate need of salvation. How do we know that? Because Luke tells us what they talked about. You see it in verse 25. You reason with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. He talked about righteousness according to the law. In other words, Paul was talking to this man who was known for perverting justice and doing so for his own sake. He was doing that very thing in his very case. Could you imagine as Felix is thinking about this, as Paul is talking about him, speaking about doing what is right and good according to the law, had to be burning in the back of his mind, yeah, I'm actually trying to get a bribe out of you right now. Paul was speaking to them, saying, what are you doing? How you're conducting your business as a governor is, is not right. Your justice is, is not right spoke to him about righteousness. He talked to him about self-control. No doubt self-control over his body. Felix was previously twice married. 
And now the woman that he was with, Drusia, was actually married to another man until Felix took her to himself at about 14 years of age, meaning she was 14 years old. He was much, much older. So he was an adulteress. In reality, he was a pervert. And Paul talks to him. Remember, the governor of that area about self-control. And he talks to him about the coming judgment. No doubt saying, Felix, yes, you are a judge. But there is a greater judge. The Lord Jesus Christ, and he will judge you. If you ever wondered if Paul had a backbone, you need not wonder. You need not worry. These were not light topics. Paul, indeed, had some nerve to speak to Felix in this way. But it demonstrates that Paul would not kowtow his message to his audience. He preached sin and the coming judgment to both the small and the great alike. It's what Felix needed to hear. It's what all need to hear. It may not be a popular message, but it is a true message. And therefore, it's a needed message. And yet, what was Felix's response? Well, it says that he was alarmed. We could perhaps say he was frightened. And therefore, he put Paul out of his presence. He says, go away from me. When I have an opportunity, I will summon for you again. He didn't want to have to deal with those thoughts, did he? Because those thoughts were frightening to him. And in reality, they are frightening to to any of us when we understand who we are before a holy God. Felix wanted to be comforted by his lies and by his creaturely comforts. He perhaps had other advisors tell him, oh, can you believe what he just said? Paul, what an extremist. What a radical. Don't listen to him. The result is Felix never repented. He never confessed. And he never believed. He was right there. Toes on the line, as we would say. But he never crossed over. He never bowed the knee. He never submitted to a greater king. He never stumbled over the rock of offense. Rather, he kept putting it off and putting it off and saying, I'll think about that tomorrow or next week or two weeks. In fact, as we read at the very end, this went on for two years. Two years that God was gracious to have Paul in his very presence for Paul to give this message, the the message that Felix so desperately needed to hear and yet he would never consent until it was too late. We read of it at the very end that he was replaced by Caesar, by Nero. And another comes in and he was sent back to Rome, we believe. And he was never given another opportunity. As I mentioned at the very beginning, Felix was a near convert. My friend, the same message goes to you this day. 
It's not just the message of this man. It's not just the message of Paul. It's the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes to you directly this day. And it is the same message. It's a message of righteousness and of self-control and of the coming judgment that there is indeed right versus wrong, that we do not get to rightly define it ourselves, individually, or as a culture. We cannot just go with what is the popular opinion of the day. We have to go with the righteousness of God. God tells us what is right and what is wrong. And the same message of self-control, which is a message that our culture needs to hear so desperately bad because it is severely lacking Rather, there is extreme self-indulgence on every level these days. And likewise, it is a message of the coming judgment that we too will be on trial. Not before Felix or any human judge, but above that, the judge of heaven and of earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, friend, not the person sitting next to you, not the person behind you, but you. What will be your defense on that day? What is it that you will be able to say? Will you be able to say like Paul that I have a good conscience before God and before man? And the only way you can have a good conscience is that you come back to that same conclusion again and again that we are wretched sinners Sinners that are in desperate need of saving. Even though the world might try to flatter us and and try to tell us that we are okay and that indeed we are probably better than most. They might try to treat you like the Jews treated Felix and say a whole lot of nice things. It does not matter what the world says about you. It only ultimately matters what God of heaven says about you. And we know what is right from wrong because it is written on our hearts. It's written with the very finger of God, the moral law. And we have broken every last one of them. And we have no defense other than that we are guilty as charge. And Jesus says that when he came, he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it is the sick. That he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so let me ask you this morning, are you healthy? Are you righteous? Or are you a sick sinner? Because if you are sick, there is a physician. And his name is Jesus. And if you are a sinner, then there is a Savior And his name is Jesus. And you cannot put it off till tomorrow or the next day. You cannot think when I get older, children, youth, I will think about these things. No, there is no near converts. Close enough only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, but not in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will find safe pasture. Notice there's not many doors. There's not many gates. There's one door, and there's one gate, 
And so will you enter this day while there is still room, while the door is still open to you? See, the door was open for Felix and in fact was even open for two years, which is an incredibly long time. But then it was too late and the door was shut and it was closed out of the kingdom, not just temporarily, but eternally. And how great is his misery even this day because he had the greatest opportunity and yet missed it. It never turned away from his own sin and self-righteousness. My friends, don't allow that to be you this day because that same opportunity is open now. If you hear my voice, then you hear the voice of Christ this day. Repent and believe and walk in righteousness. And again, this is not just for one person or another person or the next person or that person. This is for you, for each and every one of us. The author of Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and run the race with perseverance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. See, don't wait for a better time. Don't wait for a more convenient time. That time may never come. Today, today is the day of salvation. As we go to the table, as we ponder on these things, as I began, I began with that story of the rich young ruler, but let me end with another of a man that swindled and cheated and defrauded many people who lived for self, and as a result, everyone hated him. He had very few friends. He was, in many ways, the complete opposite of the rich young ruler. But one day, Jesus spotted him and said to this man, I'm coming to your house. And when confronted with his sin, unlike the rich young ruler, he repented and he believed. And that man was no other than Zacchaeus. Yes, that man, that wee little man, that was he. But when you think about it, between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, externally speaking, who would have been that you would have thought that would have first believed in Christ? No doubt you would have thought the rich young ruler, not the tax collector, Zacchaeus. But it is interesting that Luke puts that story in the next chapter immediately after the rich young ruler. And I think it's intentionally so because I think it demonstrates that the choice is before us, that we will either be a rich young ruler or we'll be like Felix who have this wonderful opportunity to repent and to believe and yet squander it. Or you have this beautiful opportunity like Zacchaeus to do the same and actually follow through with it. It makes all of the difference, doesn't it? Eternally so. Man may look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the hearts. And so as you come before such a God this day, the one who examines your hearts, that knows you inside and out, I would plead with you, do not just draw near 
but come all the way home. Come all of the way home in true faith and repentance. And if you would, and if you do, you shall be saved.